Hi everyone, the views, thoughts, and opinions expressed in the following podcast belong solely to the host and its contributors. They are not necessarily the views of our employers, organizations, committees, or other group or individual. I'm David Campbell. And I'm Joseph Whitney. This is Brewing with BIM. Where we talk about construction processes, technology, BIM, and beer. Well, hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Bring with BIM. I'm Joe Whitney. With me is Dave Campbell. And today we've got a great guest. We have Dwayne Miller. What's up, Dwayne? Hey, how are you? We are doing well, man. Doing well. Good um, to be with you guys. Oh, man. Appreciate it. So we've been having some, yeah, yeah. We've, we've been having some great conversations uh, kind of offline and, and kind of preparing up to this. That kind of just took us all over the place. You've got quite a remarkable story. Um you know, for those of you guys that don't know Dwayne, he's with uh, Unify Labs. Uh, you you kind of you've got this military background. You got into large construction projects. You were an early adopter of BIM. Uh, I mean, I don't even know where to start with this, but I, I feel like we should kind of take a step back. And uh, before we get going, I got to ask you, what are you drinking? <laughs> Actually, uh, it's I'm a drink at a Firestone. All right, all right, Dave. I know you've got something in hand, man. What do you got? Oh, yeah, dude. So um, I was pretty inspired by the Pelican brew that I had the other day. And after talking to a friend of mine, he told me that I have to try their Beak Breaker. It's a double India pale ale um, rated at 9% ABV. And um, I figured I'd have probably just one of these for the episode. <laughs> yeah, so <laughs> I, I got one of those and then one of my um, my home brews. I've, I've had this for... I think like a year and a half. This is a, a blueberry cider that I did um, with no sugar and like a blueberry puree. And I let these bottles kind of chill out in the closet for uh, for a while and decided to put some of them in the, the I, fridge. I'm going to bust them out. I think I had some of that before I left Oregon, if I recall. Yeah. Right, 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 right before you went blind, Joey. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm regretting my eyesight now, so... Yeah, and, and uh, I thought I was getting exotic. I've got a Firestone line or a, a Fat Tire lined up for after the Firestone. There you go. Oh, nice man. Going, going a little like, more central. We got some Colorado in you. Yeah, exactly. Like uh, I am drinking some uh, some Scotch. So I got uh, some uh, brand I've never had before, Aberfeldy uh, Highland Scotch Malt. You know, it's a, a supposedly a single blend. We'll see. Um, they say that. Um, but it's aged 12 years in oak. It, I, you know, I've, I've been sipping on it here for a few minutes. Uh, it's not bad, but, um, you know, that could be the fact that I've had probably four or five Coronas before this. <laughs> so, well, well, you guys are West Coast. My day ended a, a few hours ago, so I started playing some cornhole, and uh, I got my uh, family come down from Rochester, my wife's family, so I uh, had to get my butt whooped to cornhole drinking some Corona. But, uh the scotch isn't bad, man. It's made too. Shout out. You know, those were some awesome. Yeah, things. yeah. Well, hey, man, cornhole is probably the easiest. If you got a construction, you want to tackle a, an arts and crafts construction type project at home, cornhole is by far the easiest thing you can do. Yeah, there you go. Well, you should be drinking Yingling. You're in a good, good area for it. Right? Yingling, yeah. yes. That is an awesome beer on tap. It is. I, so I grew up in, in Texas, um, and I used to go visit my wife's family in New York all the time. 
And they would always like, oh, you got to try this yingling. And I'd drink it. And I'm like, oh, this isn't bad. It's pretty good. And then I'd go home back to Texas. I'm like, I can't find yingling anymore. You know, there's no yingling down there. At least it yeah, wasn't. Yeah. And I, I'd, you know, I'd be salivating for it. I'm like, what the hell? So I'd come back, get my fix, go back, that sort of stuff. It's happened for about 10 years uh, before yingling started making its presence down there. But now, like, I find myself every time I'm in a store just kind of seeking it out. Like, oh, they got yingling. Now that I live in Pennsylvania, I've been here a year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That allure's kind of worn off. But, uh, <laughs> you know, it's 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 better than Budweiser. It's as cheap as Budweiser. Um, and it's got, like, full flavors. It's not, not bad. And it's the oldest brewery in America. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and actually, if you get it a pinch, too, you could always go to the Iron City, the Icy Light. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. I like it. I like your style, man. I like I your style. Too. Hey, Dwayne, could you, I mean, so for anybody that doesn't know who you are, could you give us a little background? Yeah, yeah, ha- happy to. Um, so, uh, you know, as we've talked about, I, I started out in the industry, actually, in the military. Um, I, I was uh, ROTC scholarship, went to Virginia Military Institute. It was kind of like being in prison, except you get to pay for it and the food wasn't as good. Um, and then uh, <laughs> I graduated from there and I got stationed at Nellis Air Force Base and was working with 820th Red Horse as an electrical engineering officer. So I was a 480 uh, person worldwide mobile squadron and I was doing a lot of the electrical design. And the cool thing is I'd go build with the guys once we got done. Did that for about three years and then uh, I owed a little time for scholarship. But then after Desert Storm, I was able to, uh, I was, had an opportunity to early out. And then went to work in Vegas, um, started doing design for uh, really large scale projects, a lot different commercial side than it was, you know, doing design building the military. Um, left Vegas in 93 and was in Colorado for four years and opened an office for a firm. And um, we were doing a lot of hospital work. So I was doing, I had gotten my PE in the, in the, in the interim. So I was doing a lot of design, uh, working with a lot of contractors, um, but uh, was a principal in an engineering firm there. And then in 90, 1997, Got a call from the guys in Vegas. They wanted me to come back. And I was like, ah, I'm in Colorado. You know, it's, I, I love to fly fish. And I, I just don't. Uh, but then I came back and I saw all the stuff that was going on. Bellagio was coming out of the ground. Um, you know, Mandalay Bay was under construction. And we were doing all the design for that. So it's kind of like being in a candy store. Um, and you, we went so fast back in those days that we were really doing a lot of design assist, design build, working with the contractors. And I had my journeyman electrician license. You know, I got that while I was in the military. And so I, I really liked working with the contractors because you want to make sure you're you know, giving them something that they can actually um, use and, and deliver on. Um, but fast forward, we were at 28 people in 1997, two offices, and then by 2016, we were in um, Hong Kong, Macau, doing Ho Chi Minh City, doing a lot of work in Australia, uh, across Asia, plus across the U.S., uh, primarily the hospitality resort space, and uh, we were also in Dubai at that time. Uh, so we had grown from about 28 people to 240. I kind of took the business over uh, early 2000s, started really uh, setting the strategy and, and kind of in the CEO role. Um, and I was uh, one of the major shareholders for the for the for the company. But uh, anyway, we uh, got to work on you know most of the stuff up and down the strip. My favorite project was uh, you know the Win Las Vegas. That was just a real joy to work on. And then some really huge projects uh, in Macau, uh, working with the Win organization, also with MGM. Um, but uh, you know we were always trying to stay on our, on the front foot because we were only 240 people and we had a global footprint, so we had to do a lot of work sharing. I uh, had to share resources, and we worked worked with distributed teams 
So when we started migrating to BIM, um, you know, it became uh, pretty important to us that we wanted to really make this technology work and get on the front foot with it and started adopting it early on in about 2004. And then Megan Green, who was our design technologist for JBA Consulting Engineers, you know, she was really helping us on that journey and helping us figure out, you know, what does BIM really mean for us? And I think we kind of spoke about it previously, but the big challenge with BAM, I think the whole industry really underestimated the shift that we're actually making. Going from a 2D graphical uh, representation to illustrate the build is completely different than building a 3D visual database where objects are what they are and the data associated with geometry and, and the objects really are become very important because it's the summation of the objects that make up the building. Um, so that really led to, uh, when we were adopting uh, and really endeavoring to figure out how do you make this technology actually work and maintain velocity on you know getting projects out the door, getting getting our internal teams up to speed. Um, so sold the company in 2016 to a publicly traded company um, and Unify Labs actually started in 2010 and was incubated within uh, JBA Consulting Engineers because a lot of the problems that we ran into, you know, we kind of discovered that uh, a lot of other firms were having the same issues. So we thought we might be able to help uh, evolve a technology that from our perspective, it's a, it's a, it's a great migration. I mean, it's really good that we're moving away from this 2D environment that uh, really doesn't, uh, just doesn't do justice and, and really help optimize, you know, the build and, and the design, uh, and then ultimately the operation. So we've, we always felt that if we can help that technology move forward, we can help people, you know, build a better now and then enable a better future through some of the technology we can develop in the context of Unified Labs based on the domain experience that both myself and my co-founder had and, and a lot of our people who, you know, come from the domain on the AE side or the contractor side. So I'll shut up. I didn't mean to filibuster, filibuster so long. No, dude, that was so good. That's awesome. You know, I, 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 I was honestly just trying to think about different things that we could kind of tangent into as I'm as I'm re-listening to that. You know, I, no, I, I love it all. I really do. And I thank you so much again for joining us. You have so much experience in this industry and and with BIM in general. Um, I think it's great to have you on here. I really well, do. I, I'm, I'm always a fan of if, if people can, uh, the best, uh, you know, a lot of people that I work with, it's like, look, the only thing I ask of you is make unique mistakes. I'll share all mine with you and, <laughs> <laughs> you know, just, and we, we've had plenty of opportunity to make a lot of mistakes. So, and, and the learning that comes with that, the, you know, between, and it's the same in the, you know, design and construction industry, they can't teach you in a classroom that you can only learn by getting your head kicked in on a job site. And yeah, I mean, you guys both know that. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Um, so Unify is uh, 10 years old now. Uh, um, you know, thinking about, you know, what you guys offer today, the, the design problems that you guys experienced uh, when when you were doing these hotels and hospitals back then, a lot of it still is present today, which is weird, right? You know, stepped in, magically fixed itself. But Unifier presents a unique kind of uh, situation, unique solution for these, uh, for these problems. You know, how have you guys grown uh, you mentioned people getting their heads kicked on in unique problems, like, you know, unique mistakes, rather. You know, how have you guys evolved? What changes have you guys made to the years? Well, it's really interesting because when we first started, I think I may have shared with you guys, you know, uh, when we were uh, deploying on Revit, there was a big project in Vegas, the Echelon Resort. 
Um, and there was a 3,200-room uh, guest tower, uh, and at the base of that tower, where all the infrastructure collects, is where the architect uh, had decided uh, that he wanted to put the data center for this whole, yeah, it was a 5 million square foot property. Um, and when we started looking at it, and you look at all the infrastructure competing for space uh, below that last uh, level of, of guest rooms, it was just, uh, you know, I told him, I said, We're, we have to build a Swiss watch here, we really need to model this. Um, and this was probably 2006. And uh, so we went ahead and modeled it. They gave us a, a large added services uh, to get that done. Um, and then about two months into it, I go and I'm checking on the project. And the guys had spent, you know, 150% of the fee and we were still, you know, having a lot of fun with Revit. Um, and I'm like, so I asked the guys, what's going on? Why, why, how are you spending this kind of money? They're like, well, we have, we have to build all these objects. We're building racks, we're building UPS units, we're building uh, cracks. Uh, cable tray, um, you know, so I, I said, well, what are you doing building that? Why don't we just get it from the manufacturers? And I said, well, the manufacturers don't have it. And I, was, I, and I was kind of perplexed. I was like, that doesn't make any sense. So we're, we're specifying their product, but we have to build something so that we can represent it in a model. That doesn't make any sense. So we started talking to manufacturers and they, you know, you'd say BIM and they would just look at you like you were speaking, you know, Greek or something. They no clue. They didn't understand BIM. So initially what we started doing was really just how do we help the manufacturers start to understand this and how do we help people get content built? Because, you know, again, the model is the summation of the objects that make up the building. And if you don't have the objects, it's kind of hard to get the building done other than maybe a graphical, a 3D graphical representation or a visual representation. Um, so we started building content and that's initially where we kind of started to move into the space uh, also, we're doing some different applications, you know, configurators and some other things working with manufacturers. But we quickly figured out, you know, about 2011 after we'd been at it for about a year, you know, we're building a lot of content and, and we're helping a lot of our customers out. But at the same time, once this content gets built and once you start these libraries start to evolve, how do you get control of that? I mean, it's like having 10,000 songs on iTunes and you've got no way to search it, organize it or, or really version it and you have no idea what people are using. Um, so that's when we really started to get into the content management uh, portion of the business in you know, 2011, 12, and 13. Initially started out enterprise, uh, quickly realized, you know, even by JBA's footprint, you know, with multiple offices scattered across the globe, it really has to be a cloud solution. Uh, so that's when we really started the migration to AWS and really started to build out what has become content management is kind of the engine that drives our platform, but the reality is it's about the data. Um, it really is about giving people control over their tool sets, the virtual assets that they house within their ecosystem. Um, and, you know, we talked a little bit about it yesterday. The big challenge that people have is that, okay, well, I've got these assets. Well, if you don't have it centralized and you can't version it, you have no idea what's being deployed in the model environment. Um, and the other challenge is, you know, really getting everybody to consolidate, and it's an overused term, but the reality was there was a need for a single source of truth uh, and, and the ability to validate, set a data schema for your organization and then validate and govern and enforce that schema. So that's really how our platform has evolved. And I, and I will say we were probably a little early uh, to the marketplace uh, initially. You know, we, we really wanted to uh, solve the uh, content management problem. And then there was a lot of uh, headwind towards people just even getting their whole content strategy sorted out. You know, so many people took CAD drafters and tried to say, oh, OK, well, you did CAD. So, you know, this is the new CAD. Welcome to Revit. And, and it's a completely different skill set. Um, you know, when you're illustrating something with symbols and symbology and, and just graphically in 2D, 
um, you know, the symbols on the drawing represent something else, which is, you know, you go read about somewhere else, either in the specs or in the schedules. Uh, it's totally different than when you're actually constructing the building virtually. You know, you're building that 3D visual database and it's got to have, you have to have a lot more context for how things actually come together than you do if you're just trying to illustrate something in 2D. So I, I think that was the other challenge too, is the industry needing to figure out that, hey, we're becoming virtual builders within the AE space. Uh, we're not just representing design intent in 2D. You know, now we've actually got to show how a building is going to come together. Um, and it's just, a, it, it, you know, I think that really took the industry a little bit by surprise and, and we've evolved our way through it. Um, but yeah, so that's really our journey has been. And when you think about what we're really in the business to do, it's to enable that fluid data exchange and collaboration between all the stakeholders. That's your internal stakeholders who need to you know, be able to share libraries and share content, share workflow. Um, and then externally, if you're working, you know, the architect's working with the engineer, the engineer's working with the contractor, the contractor's working with the owner. Um, one of the big things that has to happen is whatever information that the contractor gets from the engineer or the architect, it's got to show up in their schema so it's ready to consume. Uh, otherwise, we have the problem that we still go through in the industry. And it likens, you know, we talked about a little bit about how a lot of the methodologies um, have just been migrated from CAD to building information modeling, meaning that, oh, okay, here's the model. And then the contractor develops his own model because he can't really use the one he got from the AE. And then the poor owner at the end gets, you know, the, the design documentation from the AE, but the uh, contractor's uh, installation drawings, plus all their, all their subcontractors, shop drawings, plus all the binders and, and from the vendors and the, and the equipment suppliers. And you know the poor guy at the end is trying to figure out how do I call this mountain of information, drawings, electronic files, submittals, you know all the PDFs. How do I call that to inform my FM? And our belief is that you really have to get to a point where you know you can push data from stakeholder to stakeholder across the building lifecycle. And it as long as you're going from structure schema to structure schema through mapping, that data should be able to flow. So you know we're not going to be the common data environment for the industry. Uh, we can help facilitate that, and our goal is really to enable that fluid data collaboration between all of the different stakeholders along the chain, including the building product manufacturer, because you know they want they're supplying so much of the product that goes into the building. You know they, they've got to be able to play um, in the project environment in a meaningful way, and as long as they're sending you know content or virtual assets that don't have a data schema that either matches the project or the ecosystem they're being pulled into. It's just not going to work. People won't use it. They recreate it or they have to spend so much time post-processing, they just build it from scratch. Anyway, again, I'm, I'm sorry. You guys get me going. No, no, no that's up. exactly what <laughs> hey. we're here to talk about. Yeah, yeah you're, you're right on. So I've got a million questions and comments just based off of that. So <laughs> lastly, you, you mentioned something about this common data environment that you guys aren't going to be it. Is there any one platform that you guys are seeing kind of dominate this single source of truth common data environment? Uh, space, or do you think this is constantly evolving and it, it has yet to be yet to be defined? Uh, you know, I, I think it's evolving. I think the closest that you have probably is Autodesk with uh, you know Forge and, and the platform that they're trying to create. I know Oracle is also trying to build something. Um, the challenge with this domain is it's so disparate in terms of the technology that an individual firm, company, contractor, owner uses, how they stitch their internal tech stack together with the different products that actually work with the unique ways that they do uh, their delivery, uh, whether it's on facility management, maintenance, or it's lend lease that 
Associates, who's managing uh, a huge portfolio of assets and have standardized, you know, product sets and manufacturers that they work with based on, you know, big corporate contracts. Um, and then, you know, down to the architects and the engineers, you know, everybody's got a unique approach to how they deploy technology within their domain, their own, their ecosystem or their firm. Um, and I think, you know, what we've had to figure out is we can't be everything to everybody. Um, and what we really want to do is, is help people get structure to their ecosystem. As long as your ecosystem is structured, if you're playing with others who also have a structured ecosystem, we can solve that problem. The problem we can't solve is take noise and turn it into coherence or intelligibility. Uh, if the data is a mess, it's a mess. And so what we've seen, and I think you guys probably attest to this as well, that you know, mostly what happens in the industry is that we're using BIM with all of this great horsepower for visualization. Uh, you know, it's great for 3D visualization, and hey, there's a lot of benefit to that, a lot of benefit to Clash, but that's not really what's going to drive this technology forward in a meaningful way and, you know, help us collectively as a domain really start to optimize and create a responsible built environment. Um, and, you know, I, for me, I mean, it sounds kind of corny, but if we can help people uh, build a better now and enable a better future for the built environment that this generation is going to have as a legacy that gets handed on to whoever inherits it. Um, I, I think we have an obligation to make that a good legacy. So yeah, I completely um, agree. I completely uh, agree. The more information that we can include, like <clears throat> the more that we can connect with it. And I understand what you're talking about. Like a, an architect isn't going to use the same uh, level of detail or the same components that a, you know a construction firm. Um, would use for their drawings, right? But at the same time, if we can get those families to that level of detail where it has all of the connections and things like that that they would need in that instance for construction, I think that would make things a little more easier translated, you know, between. Well, each 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 industry or each industry rather, each discipline is actually um, uh, they're, they're all specifying a level of detail, but they're specifying it for individual elements. So a an architect is, you know, their, their, their specifications are for architectural elements, whereas an engineer is for the structural or, yep, yep, or the yep. mechanical electrical piping. But that said, the subcontractor comes in and has to detail to a different level of fabrication. So we, right. what we end up with is this disparity of um, different levels of BIM. And we never, we think of it in LOD, but it's, Think about it just no. a little bit different. Yep. Let's think about it in terms of we have BIM for marketing, right? We do BIM, guys. We have got 3D representations. Hey, got our BIM on. That's what the manufacturers yep. used to tell us. We've got our BIM on. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and that brings up another point. So manufacturers, uh, I don't know how often you've run into this, but manufacturer-driven content for, for Revit models has been, you know, it's, it's wonderful to have, right? But I almost spend more time uh cleaning that model that that uh family up to make it usable and not bloated essentially because it's got so much information right? it's so powerful that i could have probably just created it myself or you know bought somebody else's content do you guys run into that quite a bit yeah i, I think that you know the building product manufacturers they've kind of been a little bit um uh, i don't want to say um you know, they didn't know what they didn't know. And what they did know is that they want to be specified, they want to be procured, and they want to be able to, you know, help owners as they move into, um, you know, building operation. Um, and But they really didn't understand what building information modeling was really about because most of the people working with manufactured content, uh, it's falling to their marketing side. Uh, and what they're looking for is leads so they can get specified. 
Um, it's not really the product people. Um, so, you know, what they want is, hey, my architects who specify me, my engineers who specify me, my contractors who procure me, they're telling me they need this BIM stuff, you know, help. Um, and, you know, that, it's all over the board. There's some manufacturers that have done a really good job at, at, at meeting that, um, the challenge kind of head on. And there's others, you know, there's a lot of outsourcing that goes on and they think, oh, I can just outsource it to, um, you know, somewhere else, get it done really cheap, and then I'll give it to my customers and it backfires on them because, you know, they end up getting you know, really bad content produced. They deploy it on projects, uh, you know, it breaks the model or it, it uh, corrupts a library. And now, now the the very people that they were trying to make happy and, and make uh, excited to specify their product are upset with them because they got garbage content for them. Yeah. Um, yep. And then what's really happened is most of the times when manufactured content does come into an ecosystem, it gets quarantined um, so that you can, they can, you can uh, look at it, understand the quality of it, um, know what you're going to have to do to post-process it. Um, so it's, it's a, um, yeah, it's a challenge for the BPMs. And one of the things we've done is we've opened up channels on our platform and it's from content providers that we trust and, and we've worked with because we used to be in the content business. We stopped building content beginning of 2019. We don't do it. Um, we're totally focused on really evolving our software platform and, you know, our Unify as a BIM data platform. Um, so, um, you know, we have a really good context for the, the content space, but um, there's and there's some good providers out there that we will turn manufacturers toward and then they can put it on our platform as a channel and then the architect, engineer, uh, contractor, owner, they can opt into that channel if they're interested in consuming the content associated with that specific manufacturer. Yeah. So, so just to jump back real quick, um, you guys don't produce content. Now, are you seeing kind of a shift in the way things are going since Seek is no longer really Seek? Uh, has that changed your kind of overall uh, yeah. outlook on things? Or no, I, I think I think the uh, challenge with the repository model and and hey, they're not, nothing against them. They're I, I know those guys, really good guys. But the challenge is, it's the transactional nature of the engagement. Um, you know, what's going to happen if I need something? I'm going to go look at a, BP, a building product manufacturer's website, or if I subscribe to um, you know BIM Store or BIM Smith, both of whom make really good content, or BIM if I'm object. Yeah, BIM Object or Engeworks. Um, you know, I'm going to go, I'm going to get what I need. I'm going to pull it into my ecosystem. I'm going to post-process it once and make sure that it's suitable for the shared parameters that we use as a firm. Uh, and then I'm going to, uh, you know, set it out and let my users have access to it. Um, but there's no reason for me to go back there unless I need something new. And I think that's what people, I think there was this vision out there that every time you're specifying an air handling unit, you're going to go to Train's website and download their latest and greatest content. And in the AE space, it doesn't really work that way because one, you don't know specifically who's going to get uh, procured, uh, and none of the objects become real until the contractor, you know, makes the purchase. Um, yeah, and on the owner side, it's a little different because if they've got a big asset portfolio, they, they want to standardize. So you will know what it is that's going to come in. And a lot of times companies, you know, the bigger companies, they'll have, they've got their uh, prototypical assets that they keep in their libraries and they keep them up to date. And they want to be able to push those to their architects, to their engineers, and to their contractors so that when they get the model at the end, they can consume the data and use it to inform FM. That's yeah. that's a very important component too when we talk about BIM for FM. David and I we we spend quite a bit of time thinking about BIM beyond BIM. So earlier I mentioned you know there's different levels of BIM. You've got BIM for for marketing, right? Hey guys, we do BIM. We got 3D, you know whatever it is. 
And then we've got BIM for, you know, the GCs, right? Or not just the GCs, but BIM for construction, more or less. Yeah. yeah so it's, you know, you get your clash detection. Maybe we can get some phasing out of it. Uh, we'll do some site logistics, that sort of stuff. Uh, and then you got, you know, what I think of holistic BIM, which is BIM for, for owners, right? The owner actually has actual data at the end of this, the, the output, right? It feeds into their FM system which is never easy. You know, it's never just this simple term <laughs> yeah. uh, that people think it is like, oh, I gave you guys all this information. You know, push a button and it'll just yeah. inform FM. <laughs> yeah, we, we're going to have somebody coming on here in a few weeks to, to, to kind of talk about this a little bit more. But it, it's not simple yet. It's not it's not all there. So, you know, BIM is still kind of a little pie in the sky uh, for for a lot of the things that we want to do. Um, but, you know, you were mentioned earlier that, you know, CAD managers are becoming BIM managers. David and I deal with this every day in our day lives. Uh, you know, you know, we've got you know, other jobs. Right. And yeah, it's yeah. training people that use CAD to get them into Revit and show them the differences. And the number one thing we always run into is, well, that's not the way AutoCAD does it. That's not the way. And it's like, that's why this, this is, is called different. Revit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Different mindset. Come on. Get with yeah. There's a reason why we're not, you know, why we're not playing with dynamic blocks or whatever. Yeah. There's no reason, you know, the reason why we're not playing with viewports. And you know, what's interesting. This though, is all, this is a model. You know, what's Go interesting ahead. is, I, no, no, you're good. That transition, right? I'm actually doing a training right now where um, they're transitioning from AutoCAD to Revit. And what I've found is you have two types of kind of personalities there. One, um, they're frustrated, right? And and they, they have their, their CAD standards and they're trying to figure out how to move that into Revit. The other one, um, that I really kind of enjoy is when they start asking more questions yeah. and they're like, well, well, wait a minute. So do you mean that, you know, when I, when I move the survey point here and I acquire the coordinates, you know, I unclip and I move this here that everything I transition from CAD can take into this. And then you start, yeah, okay. Yeah. Yeah. And, and as soon as they start understanding that translation of what it means to be, 3D to be designing in 3D to be fully parametric for that everything to understand that everything in this program has a relationship. You know, even the views themselves within, you know, speaking of just Revit, Revit in general here, but um, even in the views themselves, it's all parametric. All of this data works with itself unless it's view specific, you know, visibility graphics and, and, and things like that. But everything that you model, everything that it intertwines with everything else has a relationship and it's once they understand that and, and things start moving past that point it's it's great right because a lot of them understand okay this is what we need this is part of the process we're already doing this we're just double doing it because we're drafting it in this view and we're doing this here and we're also writing up a spec whereas in in BIM, incorporating BIM, everything together, when if we can get the specifications within the program itself, right, in, into some of these families to have, um, excuse me, to have that connected data stream, it's amazing, like, to be able to see that transition without having to put that much time or that much more time and effort into it. Because, again, they're already doing it. Most people understand this is needed, right? But to be able to um, understand the relationship that everything has together and to have that information within your model is, it, it's awesome. It's, it's a, they're like, wait a minute. Whoa. 
Yeah, it's it's a, and it's a whole different mindset um, because you know CAD really we're drawing lines and yeah you can do some really cool things but at the end of the day it's an it's a graphical illustration of of uh, in 2D and yep. you may have some 3D visualization that you do or isometrics or whatever um, but it, but it very it is very much a shift in mindset one of the big challenges you know we had even at JBA initially was well I just want this to work like CAD it's like well it's not CAD it's yeah <laughs> no no Revit has you know Revit yeah. speaking in general here is it, it has a mind of its own right it has yeah, all exactly. these algorithms all the code and if I try to draw a ramp just to draw it like this it's Revit's going to spit back at me and tell me ah, it's not going to work. You know, or even my slope lines on a, I'm just drawing a roof. I'm kind of just spitballing here, but I'm drawing a roof and Revit is telling me where this is going to go. You know, I can't yeah. just, I can't just model this any way I want. Revit tells me what makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the fudge, but yeah, you can't just fudge it and make it look right. No. Well, well, well that's a topic for another conversation. There is a fudge factor to Revit, but we won't tell <laughs> oh, you why. Yeah, yeah, there is. <laughs> yeah. uh, It'll break all the GCs and subcontractors' hearts and uh, cause them a lot of heartache later. Oh, uh, that's true. That's a big uh, part of the disconnect, though, isn't it? I mean, this all kind of – Oh, yeah, yeah. Fake dimensioning. All kinds oh, of oh yeah. yeah. Well, not even just fake dimensioning, but just putting in, let's say, detail or drafting views, right? From CAD and – oh. Well, yeah, dude. I mean, but we can wrap this all around and into into the same conversation in the sense that if we can incorporate all of the data into the model – Right. I mean, we all argue how much time it takes to model everything and have that that information in that model. Like what can we save time on doing with a CAD style view, a 2D view over modeling it? Right. Actually taking the time to model it. So this rebar might um, reflect its way across so that when you do any section of this building, when you take a cut, you know, it's there. It's modeled the way it should be instead of having to detail so many of these section views or, you know, wall sections, what have you. Um, it, that's a big argument in our industry. But even there, just having having all of that data intertwined, right, and, and getting over that hump of, okay, it, it's going to be worth it because it saves us time here. The constructability, you know, now makes uh, sense. I love showing people the McLeamy curve, uh, oh, a coworker yeah. who, a coworker of ours, colleague of ours, used to work at Autodesk. Uh, he was on the Revit architect, or he was on the AutoCAD architecture team and helped bring in Revit. And he's the first person to show me the McLeamy curve. I don't know, must have been like seven years ago or something. Um, and he showed me, you know, this curve, which has probably been around for forever, um, 2011 or something. Um, he showed me this curve, and essentially it shows you the the time put in. If you think about BIM in terms of, um, you know, the amount of time and effort put yeah. to change things, right? So if you, if for instance, if we're working in AutoCAD, right, we've got to make more changes later on. The right. cost for making those changes later on is is higher. But if we're in Revit, where everything is more dynamic, it's a parametric model, it's got a database behind it, uh, it's just so much more seamless. So the cost for changes, the cost for content creation, the cost for everything theoretically comes down. So do you find yourself, my question to you, Dwayne, uh, thinking about this, do you find yourself explaining more the, um, the the database side of design and, and the kind of, you know, because BIM is, for some people, they just think of 3D. They, oh, yeah, we do 3D. Yeah, 3D, we do it. So do you find yourself spending more time thinking about or preaching about the database-driven part of design and how it's going to reduce your time overall? Like, do you still have those conversations or for you as most people that approach you more already BIM, BIM aligned, let's call it that? 
Well, I, I can talk about it in two ways. Um, one is a former, um, you know, uh, electrical engineer in the domain with a large firm that uh, we were running. Um, yeah, I think the thing that we had to explain to people then is because everybody felt like, oh, we're going so much slower, and and you know, everybody has a mindset of SD, you know, concept SD, DD, CD. And if you, there's another curve that uh, that I think was also a, a variation on the McLeamy curve that really talked about where your effort gets expended. Um, in CAD, a lot of your effort gets expended right before CDs go out because that's when everything is being detailed all at the same time by everybody. Electrical is usually at the end of the train because you're waiting on interiors, you're waiting on the mechanical guys to finish their stuff, you're waiting on food service to do their stuff. So there's always this huge Herculean effort towards the end of the job to get CDs out the door, construction documents. Um, and really, when we started migrating to BIM, um, you know, we had to educate the owners on, look, you need to make decisions sooner. You can't be in a decision framework based on CAD and thinking that you're going to be able to deliver uh, in BIM or in building information modeling. You know, you're going to have to make decisions earlier on um, so that we can nail that stuff down sooner as opposed to later. You don't have, you know, the same timeline that you had previously because we've got to get more things right sooner. Um, and in the end of the day, you know, yeah, you, you spend more time there, but you, you your time in the CD phase and in construction administration, uh, theoretically, you know, reduces. Uh, that that's the, the theory anyway. So we had to spend a lot of our time explaining the difference between what we were doing, um, you know, with building information modeling versus what we're doing with CAD. Um, as far as Unify goes, you know, most of our customers, um, you know, if they're not, um, if they're not, you know, pretty, if they're into the well into their BIM journey. They haven't figured out that they need to get control of the data yet. They're still trying to figure out, you know, how, how do I make this Revit thing work and maintain any reasonable velocity for my firm, uh, which kind of brings me to one of the challenges I had in the in the domain and just with the software that serves the domain. You know, this whole industry is based on velocity, um, and if you want people to adopt technology, if they're faster at their job in pretty short order. Um, they're going to adopt because that's what they really want to be. They want to be able to get their job that's due Friday done better because they bought your product on Monday. Um, and one of the things that we've really focused on is that both and portion of that. So we need to, we, we understand the pain in the domain, you know, both myself and my co-founder is a mechanical engineer came from the engineered equipment space and Megan and Sharon, a bunch of people in our domain, they, they've worked in it and they, they understand the challenges that the person in the seat trying to make your product work for their workflows uh, that they go through. So I think, you know, one of the things um, that's happened is there's a lot of really big picture stuff that's been done. Uh, and that's great. I mean, that needs to happen. But it, again, it's got to be both and. You've got to get value near term into the hands of the users. Otherwise, your poor design technologist who, you know, convinced his his board or the partners that, hey, you know what, you need to invest in this technology because it's really going to help us. Um, he's fighting with his person in the chair or the project manager is trying to get a job out on Friday. They're adopting your technology and it's slowing them down. Um, so there's very little uh, um, patience, I, I think, not, I don't mean patience, it's not in a bad way. It's just people have to get their jobs done and they've got to get them done as quickly as they can so they can get on to the next thing. And yep. it's the same thing in a BDC group, it's the same thing for an owner maintaining a building. Um, you know, it's the same thing for architects and engineers and, and designers uh, and modelers who, you know, want to, you know, get their work done in a very effective way. So we've really tried to focus on the both and, making sure that we're staying sensitive to the challenges of the person who's, you know, sitting in the chair trying to get a model done. 
uh, and you know the, the the technical staff who are really um, you know driving uh, their work so that they can meet a schedule, and then also be thinking more strategically about what is the bigger problem that we really have to solve, uh, and that comes down to you know ensuring that um, you know fluid data collaboration between all these different stakeholders. And you guys brought up a really good point earlier that I just wanted to touch on because I, I think you're absolutely right. Every persona, whether you're an architect, you're an engineer. You're a modeler, or you're a non-technical user, you're a contractor, you're an owner. All those personas have different needs in terms of what information they want and what, what information they care about. And I think one of the things that we've got to get better at as an industry is realizing that, okay, even if the architects and engineers, they have a known data schema um, and they send it over to the contractor, I think rather than looking at recreation of those objects or having to you know, pull and replace, what really needs to happen is there needs to be a layering. So when it goes to the contractor, he's gonna care about the installation. He knows that the owner is gonna care about the O&M manual. Um, there, he's gonna uh, have to know that he's gotta have a good record of the, or he or she has to have a good record of uh, installed conditions. You know, so there's, I think there's an opportunity that you know, if it's if it's just a matter of additive work to um, you know help the uh, the virtual asset reflect the reality of procurement of installation, um, you know I think that's where we'll see gains in the industry because people will layer in. Um, what they don't want to do is have to figure out how to restructure and completely recreate, and uh, and I think that's what a lot of the industry struggles with. I completely agree. I mean, I think there's a lot of overlap with that. A lot of rework done in our industry because of that you know there's there's a big gap still um and that's where it costs a lot of money is to rework things because they're not up to par well that's why well, the efficiency contracts are no, no go, go, go right ahead Joe. man hey go right ahead Dwayne. well you that's got more to add if you if you look at the if you look at the efficiency curves in the industry and you can look at different you know department of labor stats or whatever and you see how the construction domain has, and it's not that, and, and I, I talked to a lot of, you know, tech people, uh, different software companies, and if they haven't actually lived within the construction domain, they don't really understand how a building comes together. And they think, well, why is it that the construction industry is so tech averse? And it's like, well, we're not tech averse. I mean, you go out on any job set, you'll find a superintendent who's got an iPad, he's got an iPhone. He, you know, we use technology when it really works for us. Um, and it's, the challenge is that it's, it's really hard to um, get technology that actually works beyond uh, just one specific segment of the uh, building life cycle. You know, you've got really great design tools, and what you, but those design tools typically aren't going to be used. Now, with Revit, we're seeing that kind of migrate, and with CAD, it was, it was different, different as well. But you don't see the, uh, there's just not a coherence or a, a, a platform technology that everybody just plugs into. Um, and the other thing is, if you think about how projects get done, you have an architect, I always liken it to, um, you know, if you're building a car, you're going to build a factory and you're going to feed in raw materials and you're going to spit out, you know, hundreds of thousands of SKUs of that specific automobile. If you decide you want to do a different automobile, you make some changes, you feed in different raw materials, change up your manufacturing line, and now you're spitting out the new SKU. Challenge with buildings is they're unique and the factory is also unique. So we build a factory when we're gonna get a, a building done. You hire an architect, an engineer, a contractor, you've got an owner, you've got different BPMs that you're working with. You get the building, you get through the process, you go through the building life cycle and you're done, the building's open and, and in operation. You knock the factory down and let's go do another building. You build a new factory 
new factories got all different tooling, different players, different. So it's really hard for the uh, industry to build momentum, um, you know, in, in that kind of environment because it's typically different teams. Uh, it's a different manufacturer uh, or different factory, if to use that analogy, for almost every building. Uh, which was unique in Vegas because one of the things we had here is you had the same contractors, same manufacturers, same uh, owner on a lot of projects. And that's why we were able to get things done. And, you know, it, it would take us 18 months to do things that would take three or four years anywhere else in the country. And it was that rep repetition is kind of the mother of skill. And, and, and we kind of uh, worked around uh, a lot of the uh, a lot of the conventions of the industry got kind of uh, tossed because what everybody was focused on was making sure that, look, work closely with the contractor, work closely with the owner. The owner's going to make decisions in real time, and we're going to meet a schedule uh, because the one thing that you didn't miss was a schedule uh, because somebody's paying on a big note to get a large hotel resort open. Uh, anyway, I went on a tangent. So uh, no, butts and, no. Butts and beds, man. That's what, what we got to get to, so we're, we're sticking to that schedule. So you're in Vegas, though. Um, so I imagine you've gone to all the AAUs for the past number of years. Uh Autodesk Universities, that is. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. So, you know, I don't even remember what it was, probably two, four years ago, whatever it was, Autodesk has been preaching this kind of, um, uh, you know, integration between manufacturing and construction. So, you know, as we get there, right, the theoretical BIM is that we'll have fab shops and be able to control the supply chain. I've only seen a few companies so far come to light that are able to actually maximize on this. So there are companies like Katera, which I don't know if you've you've yeah. done dabbled with, but we've, we've actually worked with them. Oh, perfect. Perfect. Yeah. That where they're managing their own supply chain and, and all the elements, maybe, uh, maybe, you know, you're, you're mentioning, uh, an individual, uh, manufacturing or fab site for each building, but they're, they're doing it per component or, or, or for specific components and then feeding that into each building. So like, look, you're only able to use these components to build this project. So this is what it could look like using these components or every iteration thereof, and then moving on to, uh, okay, well, we manage the supply chain, so we know we have all these components in, in stock, and this is the configurations that can become of them. So that, that seems to be where we're going with the, the I guess, modular prefab construction. It's like the new phase of design build is really what it is. Yeah, and, I, and I, I'm a big fan of that. I mean, even in design build here in the Valley, um, you know, we would, uh, I say the Valley, Las Vegas Valley, um, you know, we would work pretty close with the contractors and if like uh, on the wind, for instance, you had 2,400 guest rooms and you had stacked queen suites that were pretty much the same, you know, dimensionally same, pretty identical. And what the, uh, you know, the contractors do is they want to build as much as they can off site and bring in kits so that if you've got an electrician who's got to rope that room, he has a box. And he knows that box is for the double queen, and he's got 26 double queens stacked. He goes from one to the one up to the floor above to the floor above to the floor above. And the quality control, now you're not reliant on, hopefully, you know, the journeyman who's hooking up the lights and devices didn't have too much to drink last night. Uh, you're, you're actually, um, you know, fabricating in a manufacturing type of environment and then delivering that to the site, and it gets installed as a kit. And I think there's a big... Uh, I think there's a lot that can happen with that. I think from a, uh, an overall building standpoint, uh, I think the challenge for, for buildings that are very repetitive or very symmetrical um, and, and, you know, where you've got multiples of them, I, I could see, you know, like the Katera methodology. I think there's there's some, some legs to that. I think the challenge is, um, 
you have to take in uh, regional concerns. Um, and you guys have been around the industry long enough to know that if you're doing something in LA, that's different than doing something in Chicago, that's different than doing yep. something in San Francisco, that's different than Pittsburgh, it's different than New York, it's different than Miami. Uh, and then add to that, let's go to the UAE, where they don't care about saving money on uh, labor, all they care about is saving money on materials. Uh, yep. Same thing Same thing in Asia, you know, Singapore is a little bit different, but you're in Hong Kong, you're in Macau, it's like, why are you spending extra money on this? It saves you labor, we don't care. We have plenty of labor. So you have to really, you know, you gotta think about construction practices uh, and those vary from region to region as well. I mean, even from Atlantic City to Vegas, I can tell you it's very different environments. Mm -hmm. I completely agree. And I mean, I, I would understand why, you know, using the or getting used to different relationships of using same companies um, if you know what software people use if you already have established workflows a lot of times getting set up going throughout the entire process uh, it's a lot easier and again it's a smoother transition the translation of data is easier so uh, that's that's one of the things about our industry that's been interesting especially with governments who have to send things out to bid a lot of times right yeah. uh, they don't really know uh, and, and then as you guys start seeing these bids kind of come in and these different companies, uh, you know, they, they see these bids come in, they don't really know. I mean, some of them do specify, okay, you have to use this le level of detail. You have to use BIM or you have to use this in some sense, but some don't. And, and then you get these, um, you know, surveys that are in AutoCAD and they're trying to figure out how to create a surface and how to grade it and, and what to do with this, or, or, or they're, they're getting these families that are you know, non-parametric, these, they're blocks, they're conceptual, right? You, you know what we haven't seen really uh, take shape, right? So we, you were just mentioning these government contracts and stuff, uh, you know, government starting to mandate BIM, especially on VA type projects and, and that sort of stuff. We're seeing it start to take shape, but, you know, so, you know, 30, 40 years ago, um, even today, actually, uh, DOD contracts specify a certain contractor, you know, it's like a no bid almost contact contract because of the technology that they're employing, but nobody's really developed the systems in, or, or at least pushed them to the government agencies in such that the government agencies are mandating this type of technology and these workflows. Uh, they're just saying BIM and, and it's kind of, you know, it's AIA, it's, you know, Penn, a little bit of Penn State. It's kind of vague. There's nothing that um, kind of locks in a specific contractor, as you were saying, where if you, oh, I know if I work with this contractor or, or uh, designer, I get this software package out of it. Nothing is really to that snuff. Well, I think I think the other challenge there, too, um, you know, when you think uh, about the uh, how many of the end users, uh, whether it's an owner, whether it's, uh, you know, a Lend-Lease and maybe Lend-Lease or, you know, some of the companies we work with, uh, how many of them actually know what to do with the model when they get it? Uh, it's like, okay, here's the as-built model. Um, and this is part of the challenge that I have with uh, just, not a challenge with Revit, it's just that the technology um, and the, the data has got to be presented in a way that is intuitive to an end user who's not going to sit in a chair and you know, spend a year learning Revit or, or work directly in a model. But they are working with the virtual assets that make up the building. Uh, and that's kind of one of the things within our, our roadmap is really looking, how do you get those non-technical stakeholders? And I kind of alluded to you guys, I think a little bit when we were speaking earlier, um, when we started migrating to BIM, you know, as a senior electrical engineer, who's got a lot to contribute to the project, because I've got, 
you know, wisdom from, again, getting the head kicked in on the job site and, and learning project after project. Um, as I started to, uh, as we started migrating towards building information modeling and, and BIM workflows, I found myself getting pushed more and more away from what's going on inside this black box that is the model. Um, and, you know, I, I don't think that's good for the industry because I think you want the senior subject matter experts in the contracting space and the owner space in the uh, architect and engineering space, you know, those people who've been around for uh, and just, you know, th this is a very experiential industry. I mean, it takes a lot of years to really figure the domain out and to figure out construction and to figure out design. Um, and when those people are excluded uh, from the, the workflow, I think that's a bad thing. I mean, the people that are really savvy in Revit, you know, a lot of them are younger um, and they're really good with technology. But again, they don't have that contextual um, experience with actual construction and projects. And what we're really looking to do with our platform is kind of bring those two together to where as an electrical engineer, I can look through our virtual assets. I can start to choose, you know, what it is that I want the modeler to use. And I can even, you know, me, I'm a dinosaur, so I'm going to do a hand sketch and, and you know, hey, here's the lighting layout that I want for the exterior break area. Uh, this is the fixture I want you to use, and I've attached a PDF with the hand sketch of the layout on it. So now I'm starting to influence not only what's deployed in the model, but also how it's deployed and helping making sure that that modeler has a clear understanding of, hey, what do I do with this virtual asset in terms of when I, when I pull it into the model? So that, that's kind of, a, I sidetracked us a little bit, but I think it's an important thing for, you know, even a job superintendent, if he gets a new model from the, uh, uh, from the AE and, okay, well, here's your construction. Uh, this is our CD model. Uh, well, what's in it? You know, how does he actually understand what virtual assets or what objects are in that model? And how does he, you know, scroll through that? Um, you know, how does he look to see what it is that they've been delivered? And more importantly, when he gets the revision to that six months into the project, how does he do a diff between what was in model A at CD and, you know, CDs plus six months, what's in this new model that they've given us? And we talked a little bit about this. That's one of the big challenges. It's, you know, all the scope creep that happens on the contractor side, changes that get made that aren't really clearly, you know, cloud the entire sheet, but that doesn't really help uh, the electrician or the mechanical contractor or the GC understand, okay, what specifically changed in terms of quantities, in terms of location? I mean, all of that stuff, I think that, you know, there's, there's, uh, the technology is there now that we can start to uh, illustrate some of those things, start to have a better control over, uh, you know, diff and, and, and change control in terms of, okay, what changed between point A in time or point B in time. Um, That's an important aspect too, as we talk about, it doesn't matter what platform you're on or if you're, your field guys are on the pro cores, the plane grids, the BIM 360s, the, you know, whatever you, you pick your poison, right? There's a whole bunch of, document documentation stuff out there for the guys out in the field to access on you know ipads tablets it, it doesn't right. matter right. but uh and, and then to add to that earlier you mentioned you know um regional you know bim changes regionally right so if we're, uh bim in texas was different for for me at least at the same time as moving to to portland in yeah. the northwest which was well, in australia i mean blowing australia up. Oh, Austra way there, they're light years ahead of us right now um, and then now I'm in uh, Pittsburgh, which seems to be just picking up uh, on BIM. You know, it's uh, we're starting to go through our own little revolution here. But but that said, you know, outside of of where BIM is at and and where the design team design teams are at, it's all about how the guys are going to use it downstream, how they're going to use it in the field, and being able to figure out those diffs, figure out the uh, 
you know, how they're going to view it. And, you know, you got this 3D model. Does that mean for me? Okay, you send me a 3D model. Uh, what can I do with it? Exactly. I'm yeah. a I'm a self-performing GC who does concrete. You know, what do I care about your model? <laughs> well, I yep. care a lot, actually, if I know how to pick it apart, right? Yeah. Yep. Yep. If I can figure out your footing schedules and your poor schedules, sequence, all that fun stuff, right? Pardon me. Well, and there's that. And then there's also, you know, okay, well, what do I, well, what's in it? You know, how many pounds of rebar uh, and what size rebar am I buying? I mean, it's, you know, and being able to interact with it in a way um, that's visually driven. Um, yep. You know, most most of the guys in the construction industry who aren't going to work in a Revit model or, or work with Tecla or any complex program, they know how to shop on Amazon. Um, and, you know, if you can create a UI, which is really what we're endeavoring to do, is just make the UI really simple. Uh, somebody goes through, they understand what they're looking for, they can search it, they can find, if they only care about the light fixtures, they can find the light fixtures. I mean, it's simple things like that. And you think about that when we talk about cap capturing the model at a point in time, if you capture the model at completion or handover and the owner gets it and he's able to look without going into the model at all the virtual assets that comprise that model, all the different fixtures, the different mechanical equipment, the different pumps, the different type of flooring, you know, if he's, he's able to get all that without having to go into the model, I think that they will consume it, that they'll use that data, uh, they'll use the information and they'll actually use the model. And ultimately, yep. I think that's that's where we and there's you know we talked a little bit yesterday about you know the next step in that around energy optimization and everything else. If mm -hmm. we can figure the facilities part out, I think you know the the energy piece will flow on the back end of that as we as we continue on this evolution that we're going through as a as a overall uh, building life cycle you know domain. Yep. So I, you know, I think. Oh, ahead, sorry, sorry, Joe. Man. I was going to say I just think that's an interesting point and an interesting view that I hadn't really thought about before. Um, if you could give someone even access to schedules, right? Yeah, like let's exactly. say a parametric schedule, but you know that when the schedule changes, it's adapting those elements in the model itself, right? Yeah. Um, that's that's amazing, uh, an amazing thought process to me. And, and because if if we can, as we were talking about earlier with that handover into FM systems, if we can utilize a schedule um, that maybe we update elements as they are changed, whether it's an air handling unit or it's a gasket or a seal or a pump, you know, whatever it is, um, warranty information, kind of what have you. If we can update that information and it literally updates the model, parametric par parameters and everything, that's going to be awesome for that as built, right? Going going forward, you're always going to be able to allow someone an easy kind of transition of data there into something they understand, whether it's an Excel-like format or, you know, what have you. Yeah. Um, but but give that capability of where they're they're not really modeling, but at the same time, guess what? They are. They're yeah, really I, adopting or and adjusting that model in real time. I love that we t you mentioned earlier, Dwayne, that uh, and David, this this whole conversation ties together with what you just said. But I love how you said earlier that um, you know some people think of technology as not being uh, <laughs> technology driven, but exactly what David, what you're saying, like this. This is technology driven. Everything that we're doing is, you know, it's predictive analytics, it's AI, there's cloud involved, uh, scanning, robotics, machine control, like it all ties together. And it's all like we are in a very, everybody thinks about tech, you know, construction as this white, you know, this blue collar job, but it's very much a technology driven um, uh, industry at this point. So you guys developing this UI to kind of, you know, simplify processes and, and, and it doesn't matter if you're 
you know, if who you are, as long as you can shop on Amazon or, or use a smartphone, um, you you can see what's in a model. Like that just makes sense to me. Well, it gives you the ability to engage because, I mean, if you allow me to engage in a way that makes sense to me, um, which isn't through, you know, Bentley or, or Tecla or, or Revit, I mean, you know, I, I want to understand, hey, what's in this black box? And we used to joke about it and say, oh, what's going on? Don't know. It's in the, it's in the, the we call it the dark bin. Um, and, you know, if you can shine a light in that in a way that uh, illuminates the path for, you know, a superintendent who's got years and years of experience and a lot to contribute if he can be engaged. Um, or, you know, a, a, a facilities engineer who's been around the buildings for 20 or 30 years. I mean, you just got, you have to give them something that's very easy uh, for them and very intuitive. Um, and if you do, then they, they'll engage and you'll actually start to consume the model and use the model post-construction. Um, and, I, and I think that's probably the thing, that's an area where I think we'll see a lot of advances over the next, you know, five to 10 years. No, that is, it's, it's exactly it. If you can make that data uh, translate into something that they understand, something that, um, I mean, because I don't care who you are, any any project foreman, any project engineer, project manager that you kind of, you, you talk to um, in the superintendents, they're all passionate about their jobs, right? They want to, they want to get good results. They want to wrap things up. They want to make sure they have all of the right information. And I, I think in general, if you can make this to where they can understand it and it's easily adaptable any of them at that point will adopt it it's 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 not a question at that point if you can show them how they do things and and give them as you're saying shine a light but give them easy search and filter parameters to find the specific information and it's you know not not diving into a huge overwhelming model but maybe like a, a list a summary of different elements that they can kind of scroll through um, or it's you know an image of something that they can kind of look at it, it, there's so many different ways that we can do it but that makes it easily digestible right and then at that point that yeah they'll adopt it yeah i think that's that's what you'll see is that the more the technology starts to become uh, more user-friendly beyond the you know revit jockey or the the, the bentley expert um, I think that's when you'll see uh, more of the industry engaging. And that's uh, one of the goals for Unify is to really, because if and the other thing is, if you think about it, in an AE firm or in a VDC group, you know, you've probably got three senior technical or senior technical people for every one person who's really, really proficient in Revit uh, within the AE space. The VDC, maybe it's you know seven, eight to one. You move into the owner space, what they're primarily concerned about is asset management. I mean, they want to understand what virtual assets that they, they have and how they're uh, distributing those to their contractors and their architects and engineers. And then on the owner side um, or on the uh, BPM side, they just want to make sure that they're procured and they can kind of stay connected to their product uh, through the specification, through the procurement and, and into operation. So I think there's, a, I mean, there's a lot of opportunity and, and we've really seen the industry, uh, you know, I've been at it since 1989. So, you know, you've seen, <laughs> I was still drafted manually you know, on a board uh, when I first started. We started migrate to this really cool new thing called CAD, uh, you know, in the mid nineties. Uh, but uh, yeah, it's, it's, I think there's, you know, when you look at the efficiency of the domain and, and we catch a lot of flack and I, I kind of alluded to that earlier about the, oh, well, the construction industry and the building industry is they're so technology averse. And 
We're really not. Uh, we've become less efficient over time. Uh, and I think a lot of that has to do with the disparate nature of the delivery. And we just haven't really figured out how to create that flow from you know the architects, the engineers, to the contractor, to the owner, with a BPM layered in over top of a building product manufacturer. Um, and you know, so we've actually gone down in efficiency. Well, a lot of that has to do with complexity of buildings too. I mean, if you think about a building in 1970, you know, what did you have for technology? You had a PBX and a foam board. Um, now you look at the just layer after layer after layer of systems, particularly if you get into something like a hospital or into medical labs and even a casino. I mean, casinos got emergency power, legally required power. You've got you know air systems for you know isolation. I mean, there's there's so many different things, and then you layer in technology, audiovisual, uh, Wi-Fi. Oh, we've got to have you know mesh network for our uh, Wi-Fi access points across the whole property. Got to have security. Um, you know, when you start to think about all everything that goes into a building today versus you know 20 or 30 years ago it's a different animal uh, yep. and then you know oh i think only recently over the past decade have we really started to question our methodologies and you know moving away from this 2d you know cad and layer after layer after layer of drawings being created to uh, you know illustrate things in a way that it's different for the architect and the engineer than it is for the contractor and the owner um, you know, I think if we can really start to smooth that out, you know, we're going to see that efficiency uh, increase for the, for the for the industry, and that's that's really one of our goals. I mean, if you can move the needle a little bit of, on that, on a well, you know, depending on how you squint your eyes, what is it? A globally, construction is 11, 12, 15 trillion dollar industry, and if you can create a few efficiency, even you know, percentage points or half a percentage point, so that's a huge amount of uh, money that hopefully can be used for better things. Yeah, I completely agree. I think it kind of goes to show that that need for the translation. That's kind of what you're talking about there, the translation of that data right throughout the entire process um, of design into construction and in every discipline, every every process that's involved, that data has to be translated and it it has to be easily understood by every discipline to make it, you know, a seamless process it's when it's not and more work has to be done with it that it it kind of holds things up it provides that hurdle right or that kind of wall we got to go around um I, I think that's a huge thing in our industry once we can kind of figure out um what that is right what that translation what that standard is but i think it's also goes to show i mean the the proof i guess is in the pudding too with with autodesk you look at autodesk and even all these other technology companies who at one time fought against each other they they fought against each other right and, and right now we're starting to see the communication and the overlap of these integrations because the the, the easier that you make this data to adopt the easier that you make it to translate from software to software, workflow to workflow, discipline to discipline, what have you, the easier it translates, the easier, you know, the more frequently it's going to be used. Right. right. And, and yeah, and if you, the, the big thing is if you can just eliminate post-processing. So, and when I say post-processing, it's like, okay, I got this, I got this information and I've got to either restructure it, um, I got I've got to, tweak to reformat it, to make it, it, I've got to tweak it so it works for me. If, if that was removed and it shows up and everything that's in that that's relevant to you is in your structure already and what your job is to make sure you layer in that additional information with the next person in the chain, you know, if you're a contractor that may be the owner or the facility maintenance people, uh, I, I think just making that happen 
and one thing I, I think I mentioned to you guys uh, too on standards, because the challenge with standards, and I think there's a, there's a school of thought that, oh, we're going to have one ring to rule them all, one ring to, to bind, you know, to, to bring them into the darkness and bind them or whatever the Lord of the Rings thing is. Um, but the um, reality is to get people to follow standards, uh, you know, even standard details. I mean, I've been in the industry a long time and, and to get a standard details to be used consistently across, you know, one company is, is really a big challenge. Uh, so when you start talking about we're going to have this big data standard and everybody's going to follow that standard. And, and I think that's probably um, one, there's no way to really enforce that. And if you can't enforce a standard, it's a guideline. Um, and that's one of the reasons that we've always taken the approach that, look, you've got to solve the problem at the ecosystem level, because the best you can hope for is that whether it's, you know, a large architectural engineering firm, it's a large contractor, it's a large owner, the best you can hope for is that they have a known schema for their virtual assets in their ecosystem. Because if you do that, then the problem becomes, OK, well, how do I go from a known schema to a known schema? And again, you can we can solve that with transforms and, and data mapping. What you can't do is take noise and noise and turn it into intelligibility. What ends up happening is it gets dumbed down and you're left with you know, visualization because uh, the data is, is noise. I'm a, I'm a big proponent of uh, just coming from the GIS side of my brain, uh, garbage in, garbage out. Exactly. That said, you work with uh at least i'm looking at your banner flying by and i've spotted at least a dozen maybe maybe more uh clients of yours that are clients of ours and i gotta tell you there's a few on there that are um you know i, I will say that they are uh particularly uh how tough do I to say? deal with <laughs> and, well, i don't want to say tough to deal with they're challenging. I mean, challenging clients because they're, they're demanding. They're demanding. They're demanding. And they know, and they, and they know what they want. That, that's it. They know what they want. They're demanding. They have high expectations. And look, you have to meet. You have to fill this box. Otherwise, you don't fill this box for, for them. And uh, there's at least a dozen. Actually, there might be closer to two dozen uh, on your list uh, that we work with that I've, you know, you know, particularly supported in a BIM capacity over the years. Um, and I got to tell you, if, if you're making them happy, um, you you guys are on the right path. You, there's there's no way you guys can fail. Uh, certainly appreciate that. But we're <laughs> yeah, it's it's you know, it's the uh, it's interesting because it's, uh, you know, coming from the consulting engineering space and being in the we're really around the design and construction domain and building operation domain for, um, you know, 30 years. Um, it's funny because when you shift into a software model of a business, and I've got a great president, Virginia Semp, and you know, you've met Laura on our marketing side and Megan on product side, I'm added up, but you know, we've got a really awesome team, but really I, it comes down to business is really the same. Um, and the challenge really is around making sure that you've got great people uh, and making sure that you've got something that you're doing that's a worth, worthwhile endeavor. I mean, are you really making a difference uh, and hopefully making the world, and I don't mean to sound all crazy about it, but if you can make the world just a little bit better, uh, make the lives of your customers a little bit better because you're helping them just be better that's at the, the goal. job. That's, that's the goal. That's really, that's really, that's kind of what we're about. And Dave, Dave and I have that, that, that pitch as well. Like that, I won't say pitch, but we have that like mentality. That's that's actually what it is. I think like, everybody has that feeling, right? They want yeah, to participate. We, they want to make things better. And if we can better things for society as a whole, for everyone, that just makes you feel great. Yeah, right? my like, name doesn't have to be do. on it. My name doesn't have to be on it. But I have to just know that I contributed to 
um, the advancement, the progressment of society as a whole. Um, so oh, I the built sure. environment and the built environment is yeah. such a huge component of that. The architecture, the buildings, and the, the physical environment that we all um, interact and and you know socialize. <laughs> Not so much these days, but um, yeah. you know the. Uh, <laughs> When you think about that, I mean, that that's really comes down to the more that's optimized, the more um, responsible stewards we're being with you we know, the, the, the raw materials that are being consumed and, and the waste that's being produced in order yes. to provide that environment. I think that, yeah. that's really uh, what it comes down to. What was well, it? Forty percent? Forty percent? Don't quote us on statistics. Right. But 40 percent <laughs> of every yeah. job site, I think I've read no, 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 is the average. 40 percent of waste comes from construction. Was yeah. Sense. OK. 40 percent of waste comes it, it was, from construction. It, it was pretty significant. Significant, but David and I—we've preached around the country. We preached this, you know, this this forward adoption of, of construction technology because we've got to get to this point of, uh, you know, whether it's BIM, SIM, or any hybrid or any, you know, something we haven't thought of. You know, we have to get to this point of, uh, you know, we've got to accompany three billion plus people in the next like 40 years uh, on, on this earth. Growth. We, not only not only do we have to accommodate them, but we have to fix our ailing infrastructure. We have to account for, you know, more, uh, you know, hurricanes, earthquakes, tornadoes. Uh, David, you're dealing with the fires right now. I mean, yeah. that's completely shifted our whole podcast uh, schedule. Like, you know, there, there, there are all these things we have to account for that construction technology can help us make up for. And I'm not saying there's an end all be all program or platform out there i'm gonna say eventually we have to ship to the uh, shift to the uh you know hippie way the the uh, learning towards <laughs> living with earth and understanding how it you know evolves oh, and how things change and and if we can guide our architecture our designs the way that we live to that a1 so so yeah. i just gotta give a quick shout out uh, i'm watching your ticker go by and i got to the w's and wegmans just flew by and for those of you guys that don't know Wegmans, it is like the staple grocery store. It's like the the mecca for anybody that lives in the in the uh, East Coast. Uh, my wife's family, they're actually visiting us right now. They're in my house upstairs stomping around. Uh, they're from Rochester, New York, where Wegmans is. And uh, it like you can't go anywhere without Wegmans. So the fact that you guys have them on your website, that's pretty cool. Uh, they're great guys. Uh, Chris, I think, is their main product lead over there. They're, they're really uh, awesome. Uh, I mean, he's he's really helped inform a lot of our roadmap. We really reach out to a lot of the owners and the uh, you know the, the architects and the engineers and the contractors and even have BPMs that serve on our executive advisory board because you know we want to build something that's actually solving real problems and then also be forward thinking enough that we're you know postured to help as as people kind of evolve on their journey. Wow, you guys have everybody across the country. I mean, I've I've seen a lot of West Coast, but I saw CNS companies, which is the Syracuse, New York. Like you guys, you guys have really uh, hit the mark across across the country. Collins Warman, which is Seattle, another client of ours. Like so, uh, you know what's in course. Australia, States, uh, Australia, yeah, they're, they're Australia is a big yeah. big customer base for us too. That's one of the beauties of cloud. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, so. Are you seeing a, uh, a particular, um, uh, you know, adoption in, in a region? Because according to your website, it just seems like it's all over the place. Yeah, it, 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 it depends. You know, Australia is pretty advanced. I think you, you guys, uh, you know enough about the domain to, to definitely, uh, hopefully that, that's consistent with what you've seen. Um, you know, the UK is pretty advanced. Europe, it's uh, kind of a mixed bag. Um, and then, uh, you know, Canada and the North America. I mean, those are really, and Asia is coming online, but that's going to be, uh, 
there's a having lived in Hong Kong for three years and worked over there, you know, it's going to be tough to get people to really migrate off a of CAD, um, in, particularly in Hong Kong. I know the government has mandated in Singapore and in Hong Kong for all government projects to be in BIM, but um, I think they'll be, uh, and, uh, until the tools become a lot more easier and help them with velocity early on, uh, you know, there'll be a lot of resistance to, to full adoption. You know, Dwayne, that's, that's, this is a, uh, this is, a, I have, I've, I just had this kind of thought and this question pop up in my brain. You have a lot of experience with, you know, CAD information modeling, BIM information modeling, kind of as an international kind of uh, viewpoint. Um, my question for you is, do you think that our industry could benefit from standards like adoption, right? I, I look at the UK and I, I see how they have a, a BIM standard, right? I'm not sure about Australia. Yeah, um, Australia's got Anzac, yeah. If, um, if, as you look at those standards, what do you think? You know, I, I think what ends up happening is the standards are a good idea, uh, but, and, not a but, um, I think standards are a good idea, and um, I think there's also a challenge with, um, Again, if, you, if it's not being governed, if it's not being monitored, if it's not being uh, you know, alerted, um, standards uh, devolve into guidelines. Mm -hmm. uh, and if they serve nothing but that, at least the guideline, if we do end up having to do transforms from firm to firm, you know, at least everybody is kind of starting from a, a similar template. That's a lot easier when you look at the size of the, you know, of the UK and, and no insult, I was actually born in the UK. so have no issues, um, but it's a, it's a smaller market. Uh, and if you think about Australia, I think the total population in Australia is about 25 million. Uh, and each, you know, Perth, and it's very insular in terms of Perth and, and Sydney and Melbourne and Adelaide, uh, you know, it's, so they're, they're different markets. And also, you know, the governments there are a little bit more parochial. Um, so I, I think it, it, the standards uh, definitely help. Uh, but one standard that's going to be enforced on on everybody, um, I, I just that flies uh, contrary to you know my 30 years in the industry of how's that really going to work? I mean, even in a place like Hong Kong, um, you know, each of the individual firms are going to optimize, take the standard kind of as a framework and a guideline, and optimize that to the way they actually execute on projects. So, you know, I think they're helpful and I think they're, uh, it's good that people are really thinking about what are best practices, what are ways that we can actually help, uh, be, help you know, people with a guideline that's going to make it more efficient or, or make uh, the industry, uh, you know, elevate. But, and at the same time, you know, I, I think they're going to serve primarily as guidelines and it's really going to be at the ecosystem level that people have to solve the problem for their organization because that's what they control. They control their own organization. They don't, you know, they're not going to be able to control the other stakeholders. But if the other stakeholders control their own ecosystem, uh, you know, controlled ecosystem to controlled ecosystem or known schema to known schema, you know, we can work with that all day. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that. I, I, I like that. Um, I also kind of think that we can start adopting that that kind of view and translation towards um, the timeline itself, right? The timeline of projects and, and the handover and, and even the life cycle of the of these projects. If we can kind of look at these standards to adopt, know where the starting point is and kind of grow from there, um, a lot of us can kind of start, uh, again, sharing that information, but kind of growing together, right? And and growing our industry to build to that level of where we need to be and then start again trying to get to where we want to be. So I yeah. feel go sorry, ahead. Go ahead. Go, no, go right ahead. Go right ahead. Sorry. 
No, I, I would agree with that. And I think if you think about where we started in terms of the customer persona that we went after, um, you know, it was really BPMs initially when we were building content, but when it came to content management and, and BIM data management, we really focused on the AE. And the architects and the engineers were really the early adopters. They were the first ones to really start to have to dig into what was going on with BIM. Contractors were a little bit slower, uh, or not slower, just you know behind them in the natural progression and the owners at the tail end. So I think the AE space, you know, you've seen the adoption curve really spike, and it's it's kind of a, a level level climb, not a level climb, but it's a, a slower climb now where you see the contractors over the past four to five years have really picked up uh, momentum in terms of uh, you know really getting their head around VDC. And I think you're going to start to see now that's going to take off on the owner side. Uh, and as that happens, you know, those owners are really going to need framework. They're going to need, okay, well, what is it that I should be dictating at the outset of a project so that I know at the end of the project and I validated it all along the timeline that I'm going to get data that I can actually use to optimize my building operation. So I, I think that's kind of the evolution that at least from my experience that I've seen within the industry uh, and I think we're you know got got a ways to go but I think we're over yeah. we're through the, the the bigger I think people have their head around it now they understand that this is the way we're going and, and we're in the process of figuring it out uh, more so than we are of uh, fighting it and wanting it to you know be CAD. Well I think it's also a, a testament to the owners right the owners needing to understand what BIM is and how they can optimize it to what to get what they want, right? And, and, and to really get into these projects and to understand what this BIM data can be and, 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 and how they can, again, use it to get their project the way that they want it in the budget yeah. that they have. Well, I think if, if we can collectively as an industry work to close the chasm between the dream and the reality, you know, we talked about this <laughs> yeah, yesterday, you know, we've got the BIM reality and then we've got the BIM dream. And, and I think all of us are, you know, scratching and clawing and fighting to get us closer and closer to that, uh, to make that BIM, you know, cross that chasm, build a bridge across it and make that uh, the BIM dream, uh, you know, closer to as close to reality as we can make it. Oh, yeah. Yep. <clears throat> All right. Well, Dwayne, thank you for again joining us for another brew our episode. But uh, man, I, I think I think what what are we? We're about an hour and a half in. <laughs> yeah, yeah, just about. <laughs> All right. Well, I think that's a good uh, good kind of closing point there. I mean, honestly, dude, I, I think we could talk for a whole nother hour or two on this. So we're at, probably going to have least, you on for another, <laughs> another episode at some point. It would be amazing also to dive more into um, the different solutions that Unify offers, especially in content management and and the more of the uh, more talk of the of the interface itself. I think we would all benefit from from hearing about that. You guys are bridging a huge gap uh, with what you guys do, it, it it really is. We we have that big gap between design and construction in our industry, and I think I think you guys over at Unify have an understanding of that, and, and to bridge or, or translate that data between the two, um, it, it's huge. It really is. Yeah, no, we're excited. I think uh, you know it, it's just it's good to be part of uh, uh, the solution. I guess is what we're really endeavoring to be. And if we can help on that, you know, I think at AU last year is better starts here or whatever. And it's funny because, you know, we've always talked about what we really want to do is help people build a better now and enable a better future. And, you know, if we're on that path, uh, helping people get to better, um, you know, I think we're, we're doing what we really need to 
do in terms of journeying with their customers and being empathetic to you know the challenges and the hurdles that they're facing. And that, that's really, at the end of the day, I mean, we want to make sure that our customers are getting value and we're making them better. Yep, yeah. Thank you so much, Dwayne, for coming on. Um, and yeah, dude, I look, I mean, I always enjoy these conversations. Like, I, it's always great to talk with other people who are passionate about our industry and, and passionate about how BIM data is used, how it's translated. Uh, thank you again for coming on. And I want to say thank you, everyone, for joining us for another episode of Brewing with BIM. Yes, yes. Thank you so much. And uh, definitely appreciate you joining us. Um, you know, more than anything, we appreciate you being a solution in this this industry. Um, and, and above all else, I appreciate you contributing to the dark BIM, uh, <laughs> keeping that growing uh, is hilarious. Uh, you know, dark BIM um, is 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 uh, a definitely way to keep you know BIM BIM educated people entertained. I guess. Yeah, exactly. Uh, thanks, guys. Really appreciate it. I appreciate it as well. Thank you so much.